Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In today's increasingly interconnected global world, there are some indigenous peoples who do not want contact with the outside world. Uh, That number is dwindling, but in his book, The Unconquered, journalist Scott Wallace uh, details the extraordinary expedition to track one of the planet's last uncontacted indigenous tribes. Uh, The assignment, the goal, is to only track and to study, not to contact. In fact... We meet uh, charismatic explorer Sidney Pozuelo, who is head of Brazil's Department of Isolated Indians. He seeks to protect such peoples as the Arrow people, the Flecheros, and the rainforest homeland from the advancing frontier. It's a riveting story, uh, danger, and the environment. And we bring in uh, photojournalist uh, Scott Wallace, whose assignments have taken him all over the world, including the Himalayas, uh, Baghdad, uh, the Arctic, the Amazon. He is... uh, Former correspondent for The Guardian and Newsweek, has written for National Geographic, also Harper's and the Smithsonian. Uh, Scott Wallace, pleasure to uh, welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. This is a real page-turner, and it has, of course, uh, a lot of significance, especially for these indigenous peoples. Uh, This uh, tells how many many tribes do we think are out there in the deep Amazon basin who have uh, yet to be contacted? The Brazilian government, um, the Department of Isolated Indians, which you mentioned, um, has identified um, at least 27 such groups within the boundaries of Brazil. But they, um, that number actually continues to grow because they continue to investigate rumors of sightings of such uh, groups in the, in the jungle. Um, there may be another, as many as another 40 <laughs> in Brazil. So the number in Brazil itself may be as high as 60. Um, known in um, other countries surrounding Brazil, there are 15 in Peru that are known of, a couple in Ecuador, a couple in Colombia, a couple in Bolivia. So all told, it may be somewhere between 60 and 80. And uh, this uh, Department of Isolated Indians, this uh, marked, I think, almost single-handedly due to uh, Sidney Pozuelo, a change, a shift in uh, policy in Brazil? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Sidney Pozuelo, who's the main character of my book, The Unconquered, and is like, um, uh, is the founder, was the founder of the Department of Isolated Indians within Brazil's Indian Affairs Agency and led this expedition. Um, He actually um, pushed the Brazilian government to change its policy um, from one of um, using these indigenous um, rights you know, activists and scouts such as Pozuelo, who used to venture forth into the jungle to actually make contact with the so-called wild tribes of the Amazon in order to protect them, move them out of the way of the advancing frontier, um, and, and, you know, relocate them on, you know, uh, on reduced um, and smaller plots of land. Um, he uh, changed the policy to one of um, identifying where these tribes actually are, and then um, protecting that land and keeping outsiders out and letting the people live there as they have um, for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. So I was reading, uh, you, you outline a little bit of the history in, in Brazil, the 
contact and the policy toward indigenous peoples reminded me of the, the history in many other nations, including the United States, except that they have gone this one step further. They've had the chance to go one step further now. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, the Indian Affairs Agency in Brazil actually grew out of their military. Um, originally, the founder of the Indian Protection Service, a man named Candido Rondon, who actually um, later on took Teddy Roosevelt down the river of doubt. Um, many people know that story from an excellent book that came out a few years ago about it. Anyway, Rondon was the founder of the Indian Protection Service 100 years ago, um, and he himself was a military man, a colonel in the Brazilian army, who had been charged with going deep into the wilderness in Brazil, in Brazil to lay strategic telegraph lines um, to link the remote hinterlands to the you know, population centers in the Atlantic coast. Rondon, interestingly, in, his, in the course of his missions deep into the um, backwoods of Brazil, came to see the Indians who lived there, and he had many first contacts with them as the rightful owners of the land and its most capable stewards. And so his attitude was, we need to protect these people, recognize their rights. Um, and so it was kind of um, a very different policy than the one that evolved on the North, North American continent with our military and the very direct and violent you know, um, wars, the Indian wars that were waged um, up here. So some of the differences began at the very beginning. Right. It sounds right. like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and partly, maybe in some way, too, because Rondon was actually half, uh, half, uh, half uh, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote half-breed. He was mixed-blooded, so he actually had Indian blood, um, which probably made him more apt to um, identify with the indigenous people he encountered in the, in the hinterlands. And I'm sure on the other side, there's, I'm guessing there's pushback. There's, uh, the, the policy has resulted in uh, large reserves for, uh, you know, very few people. And uh, there are economic pressures. There's gold mining and logging and, and drug running. It's kind of like the Wild West, isn't it? And uh, Well, so... it very much is. I mean, that's one of the things that I found so compelling about the story in which, you know, kind of um, made, um, for me, writing the unconquered um such a an imperative are these comparisons with our own sort of wild west of maybe 150 years ago there is um you know a um, so there's the frontier and there are indigenous groups living beyond it and along along it and you know um it's kind of a free for all with uh, loggers, as you said, loggers, gold miners, prospectors, uh, land grabbers, you know, land sharks, uh, settlers, you, you've got everything there. It's kind of a very, um, um, you know, effervescent, ever-changing um, situation and one that I find incredibly interesting and compelling. Um, it's almost like, uh, in some ways, um, having the opportunity to venture into a time machine and go back a couple centuries. And, and so, in, in in this mix, a lot of competing pressures. Uh, the, the the policy was passed. There there are these reserves. Uh, right. Hard hard to enforce them, I'm sure, but there are these reserves. Yeah. So the Department of Isolated Indians, by virtue of having identified, you know, up till now these 27, you know, um, indigenous isolated indigenous groups, and getting um, the government to declare those lands off limits to outsiders. Um, has actually in its jurisdiction 
some 50,000 square miles of pristine rainforest, roughly about the size of New York State, um, you know, that that is being protected and is off limits as a result of the presence of uncontacted or isolated indigenous groups in those forests. One of the really interesting things about this policy um, is that you cannot, you know, Pozuelo evolved this policy of no contact um, because even when you try um, in, in a humanitarian way to make contact with these um, populations, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, don't, shouldn't they benefit from our civilizations? Shouldn't we bring them the benefits, including, you know, modern medicine and education and so forth to these people? One of the big problems is that as soon as you make contact with them, large numbers of them die off because they do not have immunity to the germs that we carry. So flu, measles, even a common cold can be deadly for them. So the only way you can really protect these people in Pozuelo's philosophy is to protect the land they live on, keep outsiders out. They don't need any of our industrial products. They can live completely independently from our money economy if they have pristine rainforest in which to um, live. And so this is a policy that both recognizes the self-determination of these people because they've made it clear that they're not interested in joining our society. So it's a recognition of their self-determination at the same time it is, you know, recognizes the imperative of environmental conservation. So saving the rainforest, saving the tribes, they go together in this policy. It's quite interesting in that respect. We're talking in Access Utah with Scott Wallace. He's author of The Unconquered in Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, you write about uh, a man called Ivan from the, uh, I think it's the, the Matis tribe. Correct. They, they were only contacted 25 years ago. He, mm-hmm. he To reinforce what you were just saying, uh, he talks about how a lot of the tribe was wiped out with just friendly contact. Uh, absolutely. Um, the Matisse suffered uh, more than 50% mortality in the wake of contact in the mid-1970s. So it was really interesting, you know, this journey that I embarked upon that, that I write about in the book is really kind of like a Lewis and Clark style expedition into deep wilderness with indigenous scouts. Pozuelo put together um, an expedition of 34 men, including 20 Indians from three contacted or friendly tribes who would serve as who were excellent trackers, hunters, backwoodsmen, and could also serve as potential intermediaries in the case of an inadvertent contact with the Arrow people because we were trekking through their land the Arrow People's Land. Um, And so we had among us in this um, 34-man team, there were 12 um, uh, members of the Matisse tribe. They were actually the largest single ethnic group in our expedition. And about half of them were old enough to remember what life was like um, before contact, when they saw their first white man, what they thought. And so they they provided a a, um, a really um, valuable window into understanding uh, you know the the whole process of contact and what the what the arrow people for example might have um, also thought about us but also they 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 did have these dramatic stories about how their tribe began began dying off even though you know it was Pozuelo's agency the Indian Protection Service 
who made the contact in a friendly way, meaning to protect them. But in the end, you know, more than half of them died, including most of their elders and shamans and, you know, headmen who were the repositories of tribal knowledge. So a lot of what this tribe, you know, knew um, in terms of their, you know, um, in terms of their knowledge of the forest and the um, psychotropic and, and medicinal plants in the forest and the, the ceremonies and, you know, they're, they're basically storehouse of tribal knowledge. A lot of it was lost after contact. And interestingly, you mentioned this, the common cold can, can wipe these tribes out. That's right. I mean, they are, they remain, um, the indigenous tribes, the isolated indigenous tribes of the Amazon remain as vulnerable to, um, you know, diseases brought by um, brought from Euro- the Eurasian landmass, the microbes that we brought to the New World, um, which evolved over millennia on the uh, in the Old World, um, the, those the, these tribes in the Amazon still remain as vulnerable as the first uh, Indians encountered by Christopher Columbus 500 years ago. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's very interesting. This is sort of like where this 500-year process of conquest of the New World has led into these last redoubts of, you know, unexplored wilderness in the deep Amazon. Yeah, that's uh, 500 years later. This is this is where it's ended. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't quite ended yet. It hasn't quite ended yet, yes, and that, <laughs> yep. that's, that's the goal. Um, right, exactly. Posuelo says at one point, uh, he, it, you know, backing what you just said, he said that these peoples are very much uh, like the peoples Americo Vespucci would have Yeah, would so have detailed. That, there, was, there was this one um, amazing moment that I write about in, in the book where we uh, encounter the first signs that we are actually in the forest inhabited by this group called the Arrow People, that we call the Arrow People because nobody knows what they actually call themselves. There's never been peaceful contact with them to know what they call themselves. But we encountered this um, this encampment that they, you know, had slept in not long ago. A group of them had slept in, and there were, you know, palm fronds spread out on the ground um, now drying and kind of brown and desiccated but showing where the indentations of bodies where they had slept and there was like a conical kind of bird cage they had fashioned from twigs and and vine lashed together with vine and some other artifacts and you know Pozuelo at that moment said you know these these with this you know tone of marvel in his voice these are you know almost like saying this is like a time capsule into the past these are how you know these indians live very close to the way um, Americo Vespucci or any of the first explorers would have encountered them in, in um, you know, in in the new on the new continent, as it were. So, which is one of the really exciting things about this story. I mean, is just there's so much history and um, and you know interaction of cultures and discovery and exploration bound up in the story, um, which is I think what makes um, makes it so exciting. We're talking with Scott Wallace on the program today. The Unconquered, the In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes, is the book. Uh, by the way, the website's uh, scottwallace.com. Um, when we come back from a brief break, I'm going to ask Mr. Wallace to respond to the argument for contacting these last uncontacted tribes after the break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Historic Herms Inn at 1435 East 
Canyon Road in Logan, open every day for breakfast and lunch, 7 until 2 p.m., with facilities for business meetings, catering, and private events. More information on Facebook and hermsin.com. I'm Victor Hawkstrom, General Manager of Utah Public Radio. Thank you for the progress you've allowed us to make over the last fiscal year. Because of your commitment and feedback, we've improved our national and statewide programming and have promptly responded to technical problems. We've enhanced our Utah news coverage with correspondents throughout the state and now directly serve your community with specific programs, news, and specials. We will continue to work to remain your favorite public radio station for all the programs you enjoy as we look forward to a long-lasting friendship. Thanks for your support. The Unconquered is a book from Scott Wallace, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes, the gripping tale of uh, an expedition in 2002 uh, seeking to uh, chart and uh, learn a little more about uh, a specific tribe, the Flecheros, the uh, the Arrow people, uh, who have uh, resisted contact. In fact, Neighboring tribes uh, describe them as uh, very willing to shower you with uh, poison-tipped arrows and retreat into the uh, wilderness to to keep themselves uncontacted. Uh, Scott Wallace uh, joined this expedition with uh, Sidney Pozuelo. Uh, By the way, Scott Wallace, you describe uh, Sidney Pozuelo as uh, as sort of brooding, uh, charismatic. You you draw a uh, parallel to uh, the Klaus Kinski character in A Gear Wrath of God. He's a very interesting character. So, you know, Pozuelo is a very difficult man. I mean, he's um, especially difficult to spend three months with in the wilderness, but great for literature, you know. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, just an extraordinary character, you know, full of contradictions, a, a flawed hero, if you will, an amazing person, really an incredible man um, who, you know, single-handedly really led Brazil into this new uh policy in this whole new way of um, dealing with its indigenous populations, which has had an impact, uh, I think, a global one. So um, he's an incredible character. And, um, you know, I'm sure he's not all that happy with the way I portray him in some (laughs) respects. But um, I think in the end, um, anyone who reads this book will will see that he is um, really a hero for what he's done and and the change that he's been able to bring about. Now, this policy of not contacting uh, these tribes, I, I'm guessing this would probably be a majority view, but I ran across in a, what I would uh, think would be a minority view in a, in a review of, uh, of your book. The mm-hmm. gentleman, I forget his name. Um, John Torberg, probably. Uh, yeah, probably. Um, New York Review of Books. Yeah. Yes, yes, I believe you're right. Uh-huh. Um, he, he put forward the argument for contact, and I want to have you respond to that. It, if I can remember correctly, uh, he's saying that, uh, uh, at least viewed from our cultural lens, uh, these people live uh, short, hard lives, and some of the people he's talked to that have been contacted, and of course have survived, um, enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed the blessings of uh, civilization and, and technology, assimilated quite well. Of course, he he acknowledges that 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 bridge is can be a very very um, hard hard uh, thing to, to to cross, and <laughs> contact it's inescapable uh, could result in half your tribe being wiped out. But I wonder if you'd contact you'd uh, respond to some of those arguments. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that Torberg says is like, you know, well, they'll never know unless we contact them. You know, a a um, 
you know, a Mozart opera or what it's like to, you know, eat a um, entrecote with, you know, mushrooms and french fries or, you know, I'm not sure exactly what he said, but sort of something along those lines. The fact of the matter is that, you know, for for the vast majority of these people, um, once they've been contacted, the um, the life that follows is one of sheer misery and hell. Um, as we've already discussed, a lot of them begin to die off um, following this demographic shock. Um, many of many tribal groups um, kind of lose the will to go on, the will to resist. Um, you know, the, the, lose the ability to resist the um, onslaught of settlers and invaders who um, who soon encroach on their lands. Um, no longer fearing the violent response that could come from, you know, untamed warriors. Uh, and um, uh, so they, they're they not going to get, you know, it's, it's like these are the, the, the indigenous tribes of the Amazon are, you know, among the most marginalized of the most marginalized populations on Earth. And they are not going to be magically catapulted into, you know, having great, jobs and internet, you know, connections. And, you know, there have been some tribes who've been very successful in doing that, but it's not, uh, it's not the majority of them by any means. Um, they're, they're, um, the result of contact for them is much more akin to, you know, uh, misery occupying the very lowest rungs of society, um, despoiled of their lands and their culture. And, um, and so it's not the kind of picture that um, I, I don't think, you know, John Torborg, I respect him a lot. He's a, an incredible scholar, but um, I, I disagree with him on that point for sure. Sidney Pasuelo, you quote him as saying, I'm just giving them some time, talking about people of the Arrow and other indigenous peoples. He, he doesn't sound terribly hopeful about the ultimate outcome here. Well, um, I, I would say I think you're probably right about that. Um, he, so Pozuelo um, says, you know, I'm not trying to keep these people locked away forever in, in a kind of, you know, exotic theme park, um, but rather giving them the opportunity to choose um, under what conditions or when they might want to make contact with the outside world. Um, they know where we are. They can follow any river um, far enough downstream and it will come to, you know, the first outpost of our civilization. Um, Pozuelo believes that these people have um, the right to their own um, self-determination, and if they're choosing not to make contact with us, as um, you know, in most instances that seems to be the case, then they should be left alone until such a time as they feel like they um, are ready to do so. Um, I think, you know, from what we've seen in um, certain parts of the Amazon and in the last year or so, I mean, there, there does seem to be some... Um, evidence in Peru, for example, um, that there may be some um, nomadic tribes uh, in Peru, a, a tribe called the Mosco Piro in particular, who have been making um, frequent appearances on riverbanks and calling to boats that pass them, um, that they may be ready for that contact. The problem is um, that um, how do you mobilize the resources necessary to ensure that that contact comes off with a minimum amount of, um, you know, a, a minimum number of casualties from disease or from violent encounters. And um, it, it's, a, it's a big undertaking. And so, um, yeah, it's very, it's very uh, 
that's a very tricky situation. Yeah, I was just wondering how uh, how would you manage contact like that so so you don't wipe out the trap. Well, um, you know, Brazil has a better infrastructure for this. They have an inst- institutional history and infrastructure. Uh, Peru is not at this point very well prepared for this, although um, the new government there appears to be um, interested in evolving a policy um, um, that would, um, you know, appropriate to deliver an appropriate response. Uh, but you would have to have teams of, um, first of all, you would have to educate the, the local populace living around an area where uncontacted groups are wandering, um, what they need to do um, to either stay clear of these people or, you know, um, what, you know, there, there, there needs to be education on the frontier. There needs to be a rapid response team of doctors and nurses and public health officials um, those are probably the most important um, elements to um, evolving, you know, uh, a contingency plan um, that that has some degree of, you know, some possibility of of some kind of success. From what uh, you were able to see, and I think your, your expedition did encounter a uh, a very recent campsite or a, a, a dwelling place for the flecheros, um, mm-hmm. in which you've been able to talk to with others who have had contact with them. What this is a time capsule. This is a peak back 500 years. What What is life like for the flecheros, do you think? Well, you know, the flecheros in particular. So uh, I, we've mentioned that there are all these, you know, uncontacted groups still in the Amazon. Some of them um, have, um, you know, live in much better conditions than others. They're, they've, they've got, you know, they live more uh, deeper in the forest, further away from the frontier, um, with more abundant of with not not living on the run from the wine of chainsaws or the incursion of bulldozers. There's some tribes that are really living on the edge of a of a rapidly advancing frontier. The flecheros, the arrow people, have the good fortune of living in an area far from roads, where um, the only uh, major pe- routes of penetration into their territory are rivers which um, the Indian Protection Service, FUNAI, of Brazil has, um, has um, control posts erected on to keep intruders from penetrating upriver into their lands. And so, um, you know, the flecheros have, have, probably have a, you know, um, they, they've got some longevity ahead of them. They're, they're a large group, um, several villages. Um, in fact, it's interesting. So we know so little about them, even after we did enter their you know, some of our expedition entered one of their villages inadvertently, um, and they fled moments before into the bush, leaving, you know, piles of smoked meat and smoldering campfires. It's really quite extraordinary. Uh, but they, um, they have, um, you know, we went in there to basically chart the dimensions of their territory in order to protect it and then get out. They have, um, they're, they're looking at a good, um, uh, you know, a fairly decent future, I think, where they have an abundance of game. That's one of the things we discovered as a result of going into their village, that game is abundant, they're, that they're hunting it, um, that they are living well, um, and their populations appear to be stable and in some cases even growing. So, um, you know, there is some cause for optimism. Just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I wonder if we could conclude with uh, something you said early in the uh, interview. Uh, you, you connected up future of these indigenous uh, uncontacted peoples with the future of the Amazon itself. Yeah. So one of the things that is also extremely important about 
knowing about these people and knowing they exist, um, they um, represent, I think, you know, a, a, um, a hope for rallying um, support for the cause of saving the rainforest, in, in saving the uncontacted tribes and protecting them and recognizing their uh, inalienable right to live the way they choose on land that has been theirs since time immemorial. We are also um, protecting the rainforest that we all know is so vital um, for all of us for regulating the global climate, for providing, you know, it's a big ox uh, uh, carbon sink and providing oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, we, we, know, we all know we need to begin to take better care of the planet and that the rainforest in the Amazon is one of these precious treasures and now even more precious because these vulnerable tribes who have been living there since, um, you know, and in the same way that they've been living there since time immemorial, um, it's quite extraordinary and it's cause for all of us to think about um, how we should be um, helping out. The book is The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. It's, uh, it's quite a true tale. Uh, page-turner Scott Wallace is the author and uh, the website. Uh, more information, scottwallace.com. Scott Wallace, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Coming up, we will uh, take a look at uh, methods to uh, control childhood obesity. And then we have Wild About Utah coming up as well. Uh, and tomorrow, we're going to... Uh, Go to the cloud. Many of us are uh, in the cloud uh, on a server somewhere with our music, our uh, videos, uh, our books, our documents. Is it safe? Is it secure? How can we protect that data? And what is the future of the cloud? That's tomorrow on Access Utah. The following interview originally aired in December of 2011. Thanks for staying with us through the break. I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. National rates of childhood obesity have more than tripled in 30 years. And in Utah, nearly one in five children are at an unhealthy weight by the first grade, which, of course, places them at a higher risk for a whole slew of health problems. And these problems could follow them into adulthood if those habits, unhealthy habits, are locked in. Uh, trying to combat this uh, is a uh, statewide effort. Uh, it is um, a, a statewide effort that is being uh, run by uh, Jessica Hammond, uh, Healthy Child Care Coordinator for Utah Department of Health. Uh, it's called Top Star, Targeting Obesity in Preschool and Child Care Settings. And uh, Jessica Hammond uh, joins us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Um, we're also joined by the... Uh, uh, director of a, a daycare center who has implemented this uh, program, Imagination Time in West Point, uh, Missy uh, Monsi Weiss. Is it Monsi Weiss or Monsi Weiss? No, you said it right the first time. Monsi Weiss. Monsi Weiss. <laughs> Thanks for joining us as well. Let me Thank start you. with you, uh, Jessica. Uh, tell us a little bit about this program and and the problems that you're trying to combat here. That, uh, from the statistics that I quoted, and I'm quoting from an article by uh, Kirsten Stewart in the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, sounds like this is a problem which is increasing. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely an issue that we are experiencing uh, nationwide. Um, nationally, one in three children are at an unhealthy weight by their by their fifth birthday, and so here in Utah, our rates are a little bit better. Um, we have lower numbers, but it is definitely a problem that we we see in um, low income communities and 
um, with special populations. So um, what we're doing here at the state is we, we're implementing this, um, this program called TOPSTAR, which you mentioned stands for Targeting Obesity in Preschool and Child Care Settings. And what we're doing specifically is um, we're trying to help child care providers um, improve their physical activity and nutrition environment. So we have a whole, um, a whole gamut of things that we try to do um, through um, education, and we provide um, resources and workshop trainings for the um, child care providers so that they can learn what they can do um, to improve the environment for children and improve choices for the children in the areas of physical activity and nutrition and um, screen time and so forth. And uh, I would imagine in, in some homes, obviously, uh, you'd have what we might call unhealthy habits. Are there any predictors? Could you, could you what, poorer homes would have less healthy habits? Are there any predictors you could, uh, you could use? Um, yeah, there are a lot of um, contributing factors that we've seen, and there's not just one one or two things that contribute to childhood obesity, but it's definitely a lack of, um, of adequate nutrition, um, getting all your fruits and vegetables, your protein, um, and instead of getting that balanced nutrition, you know, you're seeing a lot of junk food and, um, and um, just unhealthy foods being served to the children and, and then to um, families as well. So um, there's that aspect of nutrition and then also... Um, Activity, um, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult when we're getting to these cold winter months to go and play outside and to get the exercise that that we all need. Um, so there's definitely components that contribute to to this issue. Um, but as far as predictors go, it's it's really hard to say. Um, there's been studies that have shown um, certain things being linked to childhood obesity, um, but but again, it's it's definitely a multifaceted issue that we face. Let's bring in uh, Missy Monsi Weiss, uh, owner of Imagination Time. Uh, are you seeing, have you been seeing um, an increase in this problem? Uh, kids, uh, more kids uh, obese or are on the verge of that? Yes, we've actually, in my, just in my daycare, I've started taking on more children. We've increased our capacity. And in the last couple of years, We've seen kids that they're coming and their pants won't even button. They're in the size they should be in, but just over a couple months, they're getting too big at home and they're not even fitting in their clothes. So if they're starting that early, uh, I would imagine those habits might carry over into adolescence and even adulthood. Oh, yeah. There's, There's children that... When I start them young, I can see maybe they don't like some types of food, and it takes a little trickery to get them to finally eat it. But when I take some of the older kids in, when I'm taking, like, kindergartners and stuff in, they're set in their ways, and they they would rather not eat anything all day than to eat something healthy. They will wait to go home and get junk food. Wow. Uh, so there's an unhealthy habit, and I, you know, I should say, uh, hardly any of us is immune from this. Um, I, I sample chocolates a lot more than I should, but I guess as an adult, you at least know that you should be doing other things. As as a child, you're just doing probably what your parents are are doing. Yeah. 
so uh, talk a little bit about um, how you implemented this program at uh, Imagination Time. It, it sounds like it was, it was pretty involved, uh, reducing television, increasing healthy snacks, and increasing activity levels. Uh, tell us uh, how you implemented these things. We were initially supposed to set three goals for our program, and our goals were to cut back on television viewing, increase directed physical activity, so not just having them run around all day, but helping them work some different muscle groups (laughs) specifically, and then also to take our milk, to skim milk, which we had no idea at the time. The program that we were on was telling us to give them 2% milk, and we learned that that was unnecessary calories and we needed to cut them back to skim. So we set those goals, and at first it was so hard to determine when we were going to allow television. So we've actually gotten to the point where we sold the television. There, There's no TV in the daycare at all. How did that how did that work initially? I imagine, because I've gone through television withdrawal. So I imagine, <laughs> a, you know, kids, how did that work the first few days? Um. They, they kept asking if they could watch things, and I'd have some little kids bring DVDs in the morning, and, and I, would, I eventually just started telling them the TV was broken. <laughs> I was just saying, it's broken, we can't watch it. And we just filled it with other things. We said, well, why don't we do this instead? And I can get you some paper, and we can, we can start drawing some pictures, or we can talk about something. And... I, when we started the program, it was during summer, and I had a lot of older kids, and and they just were not happy with it. They <laughs> they were to the point at the end of the day, they were ready to beg for television just just to do anything that was not requiring them to be active. They just wanted to be zombies and mm-hmm. and sit in front of the television. And when we did exercise instead of television. Because we started doing, like, stretching in the morning and stuff like that. I had I had kids crying, saying it hurt, and they didn't want to do it, and they wanted to go to bed. <laughs> but after after a couple months, they, they seem to have fun with it now, and they understand that that's just how it's going to go, and, and there's no getting out of it. <laughs> mm, they've come around. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about a program, a state program called Top Star, Targeting Obesity in Preschool and Child Care Settings. And uh, Missy Monsivice is owner of Imagination Time Daycare in uh, West Point. We also have with us uh, Jessica Haymond, who is Healthy Child Care Coordinator with Utah Department of Health. Let's turn back to uh, Jessica. Um, other daycares that have implemented this program, I'm guessing they've had similar experiences, implemented similar programs. Maybe you could talk about some, some other daycares and, and their experiences with this. Um, we have about 42 child care providers participating um, in three local health departments. Um, right now, it's just a pilot program. Um, we're hoping at the, the first of next year or actually probably around February or March, we're looking to make this program available to all providers statewide. Um, but for those that have participated uh, up until this point, we've seen a lot of success, and we've seen... Um, We've seen a lot of changes being made in the realm of nutrition. Um, a lot of more uh, whole grains are being served. 
um, a lot more fruits and vegetables, like Missy was talking about, um, healthy alternatives to junk food. Um, and specifically, we have um, 14 different facilities. Uh, that includes home daycares, as well as centers, and actually Head Start um, that have, we've recognized as top star uh, endorsed providers which means that they've gone through the entire process of setting goals and um, achieving those goals and attending the workshops. Um, and then we've followed up with them to, to see the improvement they've made. And all of those centers and homes and head starts have made significant changes and really um, made some great strides to improve their environment and, you know, and, and um, writing different policies and um, just really making a difference in their centers. So. Uh, Missy Mosi Weiss, uh, I don't know what reaction you you got from parents, especially at this the, the turning point where you told the kids the TV was broken and you had them <laughs> exercise. Uh, what reaction were you getting from parents? Uh, I did have a couple that said they didn't really feel it was necessary and they didn't mind if their children didn't partici- participate in physical activity. Um, and others were very supportive and on board. We took it a little far further, and we started doing field trips every week during the summer so that we could get the kids out of the house and learning things as well. And everybody was really excited about that, and some of the parents came along with us on field trips, and um, they've been kind of excited to see that their kids will actually eat <laughs> eat the stuff that they've learned that Spaghetti noodles don't have to be white. You can do a whole grain noodle, and their kids won't know the difference. So there's been some interesting interesting things that have come from participating in the program. In fact, reading uh, Kirsten Stewart's article in Salt Lake Tribune, uh, you've implemented Food Fridays, where you encourage children to experiment with new foods. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> they... They will always eat the food. If you make it something fun and you say that this is Food Friday and we are going to try something different, it doesn't matter what I give them on Food Friday, they will eat it. They always try it at least. Um, We had cactus when they came out to do the article and everybody tried it. They, They all ate it and I don't know if you've ever had it before. Never have. It's it's a little sour, kind of like a pickle, hmm. and we tried it raw, and then we baked it, which it's been a thing for me and my employee as well. We have to learn how to prepare these random things that we purchase. These are things that we've never even eaten half the time, um, but they love it, and they always try it. They eat it and participate, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Hmm. Uh, and I imagine you, you'd have to be a little adventurous to eat cactus, but the children came along. With that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my my employee Lisa, she got she got a couple uh, pricklies in her fingers, but we we took them all off and they played and they did it. And we've had we did red cactus pears, which are different, and little things like papaya and jicama. It's it's stuff that's in the store all the time, and the kids are walking right by it. They're not even noticing that it's there and it's available to them. But now we have kids that are going home and saying, Mom and Dad, can we buy this? I liked it. 
So, we turn back to uh, Jessica Hammond. What are your hopes with a program like this? Uh, you're targeting the daycares, so for several hours a day, that the children will be in these healthier settings. Some of the children will be going back home to less healthy food and, and activity settings. Is your hope that this will spread into the families? Definitely, yeah, most definitely. We're hoping to to instill in, in these children um, that healthy choices are fun and that they're available and that we're hoping to make, you know, the healthy choice the easy choice. And so when they do go home and they may not be in the most healthy environment um, for whatever reason, that they can kind of be an advocate and, you know, encourage their parents to to want to eat healthy and to get outside and go do things um, together as a family. And so, so, yeah, we're definitely hoping to that it'll um, spread into the homes and that, that these children will just, at a young age, they'll learn that um, being healthy can be fun and that uh, it'll kind of instill in them um, at a very young age that they can be healthy for the rest of their lives. Uh, Missy, most advice, uh, in today's newspaper world, uh, the article comes out, and that's not the end of the story. Uh, there are comments, and they're, they're, as you well know, because you responded to those comments, uh, some of the commenters said there's nothing wrong with TV, and then pointed out that there's some good things on TV, and there's nothing wrong with some um, what you might call unhealthy snacks once in a while. Uh, tell us how you responded. Um, I think I started my comment with, I'm offended. (laughs) Um, I was reading a lot of the things, and people were saying things about how, like, this program was going to be a harder change for the providers and that it was forcing us to actually pay attention to the kids and, and that we were probably sneaking them candy on the side just to keep them quiet. And it, it made me kind of sad because I just thought, we have put so much work into this, and and we've we've done a lot. And the directors have helped us a ton. There's been little things that they've done that I'm sure they don't even know has made a difference in our program, like giving us a book called The Two Bite Club. Um, and we read read to the kids about it, about being in the two-bite club, and you take two bites of everything. If you don't like it after two bites, you don't have to eat it, but you at least try it. And we have um, food group posters on the wall, and the kids always say, what, what color am I eating from? What, what group? And they try to get all their colors in. But when people were commenting, they were just, I, I felt so bad because there is positive television programming out there, and I guarantee that when they go home, they're being exposed to that. So it's not like there's no television in their lives at all or they're being cut off from the world and they're not getting any treats, they're getting that. They're getting that at home on their birthdays. They're getting it when they go trick-or-treating for Halloween. We're not, we're not taking everything away and making it this bland, boring society that they have to be forced to participate in. We're just making healthier choices available to them. And like Jessica was saying, you're hoping it goes into the homes and they're – they're accepting the healthier choices over unhealthy choices. And we just we talk about it all the time. We say, we can eat this, and this is going to be healthy for us, and this is going to give us lots of energy, and then we can go outside and we can play on this. And, and we kind of 
we're trying to teach them that it's not that candy is the enemy. It's just that there are options out there that are better for them. And and we're putting a lot into this and all those comments. <laughs> uh, I invited everybody to come and, and see for themselves how we do things. And, and we've made a lot of changes. So mm. it's, it's been a, a big a big deal. It's not just something that we pretend to do. Uh, yeah, it is a, a big thing implementing this program, and I, I imagine this will be going forward even after your participation in in this uh, state program ends. Yes, definitely. Uh, so that's Imagination Time in West Point, and Missy Monsi Weiss is the owner. Uh, just have about a minute left. We'll turn to Jessica Heyman to... Uh, you, I think, heard you say you're trying to expand the program, and perhaps there are daycare providers who are listening to the program who would like to participate. How best to go about that? Yeah, we um, we have a website. Um, it's health.utah.gov/obesity, and that's the Department of Health. Um, their website here for the Physical Activity, Nutrition, and Obesity program. Anyway, they can get on that website, and there will be a link to the Top Star page. Um, all of my contact information is, is on that page. Um, so they can feel free to contact me, um, and as well as um, we in the future are looking to make it, again, available to providers statewide. Um, and so if they want to just uh, be patient, hopefully it will um, be coming into their neck of the woods soon. Um, but if they if they have questions now or if they are interested in contacting me, they can do so by um, getting on the website and um, reading about the program and then um, contact me with any questions that they may have. Very good. The program, again, is Top Star, um, targeting obesity in preschool and child care settings. And we've been talking with Jessica Hammond, uh, who is a child care coordinator at the Utah Department of Health. Thanks so much. And we're talking also with uh, Missy Mosey Weiss, who is owner of Imagination Time in West Point. Uh, any contact information you'd like to give for your business? Um, they can find us on Facebook, Imagination Time Child Care and Preschool, and they can call me at 801-775-0369. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Fall has descended in earnest across Utah. Leaves have flashed their colors and dropped to the ground. Juncos have replaced the flycatchers on my backyard's best perches, and my garden has been cleaned up and tilled under. As I watched the fall weather affect the plants in my vegetable garden, I began to wonder about the different reactions they had to the changing temperatures. My tomatoes and squash turned brown and wilted at the merest suggestion of cold temperatures. Other plants, like kale, carrots, and onions, are still bright and fresh, even after an early snowfall. What is it about some plants that allow them to withstand frost, while others succumb right away? Frost occurs when the temperature of an object, in this case a plant leaf, falls below the dew point of the air. Moisture from the atmosphere collects on the surface of the leaf and freezes when temperatures drop below 32 degrees. Just seeing frost on a plant doesn't necessarily mean it will die. It's the internal temperature that counts. Like humans, plants are made of mostly water, upwards of 80 to 90 percent in an herbaceous plant like lettuce. When temperatures drop, 
The water inside plant cells expands as it freezes, tearing cell walls and causing irreparable damage. The amount of harm done to a plant depends on many different factors and is generally referred to as a plant's hardiness. Species or individuals that are more compact will incur damage at lower temperatures than others due to their reduced surface area. Those growing close to the ground are more protected by their proximity to the warm earth. Plants with darker colored leaves, such as the deep greens of spinach and chard, may be hardier because their leaves absorb and retain heat better than lighter colored leaves. Fuzzy or hairy leaves also fend off cold temperatures better than their smooth counterparts. Perhaps the best defense of all is found in plants that protect themselves with natural antifreeze. When frost hits these plants, the relatively pure water in the space between the leaf cells freezes first, which in turn draws more water out of the surrounding cells. The remaining cellular fluid contains a high concentration of sugars and other molecules, which reduce the fluid's freezing point and protects the cell contents from ice. Evergreens, of course, take hardiness to the extreme, utilizing a number of different tactics to remain alive and photosynthesizing throughout the winter. These tactics include compact leaf size, a thick, leathery consistency, and a waxy coating that both insulates and prevents water from escaping into the dry winter air. Frost damage to less hardy plants can be postponed by human intervention such as covering with blankets, but as the cold spells get longer and more frequent, damage is inevitable. Everything has its season, and now is the time to harvest the last of those hardy fall greens and tuck the garden in for the coming winter. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.